The following presentation is brought to you by the Realm Network. Buzz Burbank, news and comment. Trump's trifecta of trouble. It's Thursday, March 29th, 2018. Thank you very much for your time and for supporting this independent news through the links for my sponsors, including Hello Pillow and the PayPal donate button at buzzburbank.com. The walls would seem to be closing in on Donald Trump. The Russia investigation is moving closer to him. He is virtually without legal representation in that case. And Stormy Daniels just won't go away. But first, how's that tax cut working out for you? Trump Treasury Secretary Steven Mnuchin said 90% of wage earners would see bigger paychecks after February 15th. It is now six weeks later, and a majority of us have seen no change. And fewer than one in three say their paycheck did get bigger. 52% say they've seen no extra money. Among those who do see more, 22% say the amount of the increase, quote, does not help much at all. Another 40% say it helps a little. But under the Trump publican changes, middle and lower income tax breaks will fade over the next 10 years, starting next year. Tax breaks for corporations and the wealthy under that plan are permanent, at least until a new Congress changes that law. The Merriam-Webster Dictionary defines emolument as a return arising from office in the form of money or perks without the permission of Congress. The Trump Organization, from which the president never separated himself financially, has made millions since he took office from foreign dignitaries who've made it a point to stay at his hotels, perhaps hoping to encourage Trump toward policies more favorable to their countries. Trump's wealth has increased as other countries try to curry favor with the United States government by checking into Trump's D.C. hotel. And it's hurting business at the Four Seasons and the Ritz-Carlton. The Constitution covers that under the Emoluments Clause. Article 1, Section 9, Clause 8, quote, restricts members of the government from receiving gifts and emoluments from foreign states. A federal judge would not listen when a liberal group wanted to argue in court that Donald Trump is violating the Emoluments Clause of the Constitution. The judge refused to hear the case for lack of standing. Another judge has now ruled differently, now that a similar lawsuit's been filed by the attorneys general from the states of Maryland and the District of Columbia, the nation's capital. They have now each served Trump with summons and ordered to appear in court to testify. Trump's lawyers have less than three weeks now to answer that summons. So many things have happened since his departure that Rex Tillerson seems like a distant memory. But it's worth noting what the former Secretary of State said on his way out the door, especially since it didn't get a lot of coverage. Speaking to the State Department staff directly, Tillerson said, I'd like to ask that each of you undertake one act of kindness each day toward another person. This can be a very mean-spirited town, said the just-fired secretary, adding, but you don't have to choose to participate in that. Each of us, said Tillerson, get to choose the person we want to be and the way we want to be treated and the way we will treat others. Worth noting. Also out the door, of course, is the equally level-headed General H.R. McMaster. He's out as Trump's second national security advisor after replacing fired national security advisor Mike Flynn. McMaster was allowed to resign with some dignity despite repeated clashes with the man who'd chosen him for that job, Donald Trump. Two comparatively level heads have left the Trump administration and some assurance of world peace went with them. Prepare for war. 
just in case. The new Secretary of State and this new third National Security Advisor are both considered hawkish, to put it mildly. New National Security Advisor John Bolton wants regime change in both Iran and North Korea and believes military force should be used to achieve that. He's called for a preemptive strike against North Korea. Bolton supported the war in Iraq and promoted the false narrative that got us into that war. He's already written a memoir titled, Surrender is Not an Option. Bolton has also recorded an NRA gun rights video for Russia, and he's used Cambridge Analytica to help Republican candidates his PAC supported. The John Bolton Super PAC was one of Cambridge Analytica's first customers and spent over a million dollars there to usher Americans into a more militaristic worldview. Dog-ear that for future reference. The new Secretary of State is Mike Pompeo, who also wants regime change in North Korea and favors scrapping the Iran nuclear deal. So does this mean war? To many it does, simply by the nature of these two new hires. But in Trump world, the belief is that hiring these guys is a negotiating ploy, a message to Iran and North Korea to get in line or face consequences, a ploy Trump supporters believe will work without war. But Defense Secretary Jim Mattis and White House Chief of Staff John Kelly do not think making Bolton Secretary of State is a good idea. Are they the next to be fired for disagreeing with this president? In the meantime, they and the rest of us are dealing with a new Trump administration now, one directed almost exclusively by Trump alone, who's reportedly finally doing and saying what he's reportedly wanted to do and say all along. And in Bolton and Pompeo, Trump's chosen politicians who, like him, are openly comfortable with war. These are men who will consult Trump as he enters talks with North Korea's Kim Jong-un. Bolton and Pompeo are the men who will consult Trump as the Iran nuclear treaty comes up for another review. Five dozen Russians, nearly all of them Russian government operatives, have until Monday morning to get out of the U.S. They've been expelled by the U.S. government, not for U.S. election interference, but for poisoning a former spy and his daughter in England. There are reportedly about 100 Russian agents in the U.S., some of them at the consulate in Seattle, located uncomfortably close to a U.S. Navy submarine base and the Boeing Company, which makes aircraft for the U.S. military. Again, Trump himself did not speak against Russia, focusing instead, as usual, on tweeting about fake news. The expulsions are about standing up for and with our most important ally, the United Kingdom, which has itself expelled two dozen Russian operatives there. Germany's expelled four Russians. Poland, Latvia, and Lithuania are pushing out Russians in their countries. The free world is saying Russia has gone too far this time, using a banned nerve agent to assassinate more of Putin's enemies within the borders of another nation, also putting that country's citizens in danger in the process. But back to the president's own troubles and former Trump-Russia lawyer John Dowd. The New York Times is reporting that Dowd floated the idea of presidential pardons early last year as the Mueller investigation closed in on Mike Flynn and Paul Manafort. The paper says Dowd brought it up personally and individually to the separate lawyers for Flynn and Manafort. The question is, was the idea to offer the men pardons in exchange for their silence in the Mueller investigation? And lawyers are divided over whether that is or isn't another sign of obstruction of justice. Some say it is, especially since the idea was floated by Trump's personal Russia lawyer, not by a White House counsel. But some lawyers argue that a president's power to pardon is absolute and therefore not subject to such questions. You may place your bets now. 
Flynn, as we know, quickly flipped as a prosecution witness after he was hit with serious charges in the Mueller probe. Manafort, on the other hand, is refusing to cooperate and banking on a pardon since he reportedly believes he hasn't done anything wrong. Trump's top lawyer on his Russia defense team quit without notice. He didn't even talk to Trump first. He just announced he was out. John Dowd was a fierce defender of Trump, struggling to keep his client off Twitter, at least about the Mueller probe, struggling to keep his client from further incriminating himself. Dowd was trying to help Trump avoid sitting down with Mueller and his investigators, or at least to limit the questions. With Dowd out of the way, Trump has again said he hopes that he gets that sit down with the Mueller team. Dowd wants no part of that, no part of a client who won't take his professional advice, and Trump wants no part of a lawyer who doesn't completely agree with him. Trump also believes the best defense is a good offense, but he seems unable to find lawyers to replace the ones who have departed or who never materialized. From the launch of Trump's Russia defense early last year, he's had trouble finding lawyers for that defense. Many took a pass because they know Trump's history of not paying his legal fees. Some were worried about their own reputations. Now, with Dowd gone and no one to replace him, Trump is down to himself and Fox News talking head Jay Sekulow, who has no experience in criminal defense cases. Sekulow says he has people who do. Last week, high-profile attorney Theodore Olson passed on the opportunity to represent Trump in the Russia probe. Impeachment lawyer Emmett Flood hasn't signed on still, as expected. And two other powerful lawyers, Joe DeGeneva and his wife Victoria Tensing, have now passed on their invitations as well, citing unspecified conflicts of interest. So there is now no one to advise Trump to stay mom about the Russia probe on Twitter. His only remaining attorney, TV's Jay Sekulow, has no experience in criminal defense. In essence, the president has no one to adequately represent him as the Mueller investigation inches closer. In response to all this, Trump tweeted, and I quote, Many lawyers and top law firms want to represent me in the Russia case. Don't believe the fake news narrative that it is hard to find a lawyer who wants to take this on. Fame and fortune will never be turned down by a lawyer, though some are conflicted. Problem is that a new lawyer or a new law firm will take months to get up to speed, if for no other reason than they can bill more, which is unfair to our great country and I am very happy with my existing team. Besides, there was no collusion with Russia except by crooked Hillary and the Dems, end quote. Two days later, two more lawyers turned down offers to represent Trump in the Russia case, saying they too have conflicts of interest. That makes at least five major law firms saying no to recent invitations to join the Trump legal team. The timing of Trump's legal representation crisis is unfortunate for him. The Mueller investigation has drawn its first clear and direct line connecting Russia with the Trump campaign. The Mueller team now says the deputy campaign manager for Trump had frequent contact with a former Russian intelligence officer during the 2016 campaign and knew that associate had been trained as a Russian spy. Deputy campaign manager Rick Gates was accused alongside campaign manager Paul Manafort of, among other things, conspiring against the United States. But unlike Manafort, Gates is now pleading guilty to those charges, and he's testifying for the Mueller grand jury as a cooperative witness. Gates also got the most serious charges against him dropped for doing that. Manafort, on the other hand, is still charged with fraud, tax evasion, money laundering, and failing to register as a foreign agent. Trump, who'd already pardoned renegade Sheriff Joe Arpaio, has said he's not talking about pardons yet. 
but he's reportedly favoring one for Flynn, who he feels got a raw deal. The timing of Trump's lawyer shortage is also unfortunate for him in that lawmakers are trying to make it harder for Trump to fire Bob Mueller, as Trump has threatened repeatedly. Deputy Attorney General Rod Rosenstein has already publicly committed to keeping Mueller as long as the investigation is honest and for as long as Rosenstein holds that job. But nine Democrats on the Senate Judiciary Committee have now written a letter to the five people in the line of succession should Rosenstein be fired, which is what it would take for Trump to get rid of Mueller. The letter from the judiciary members asks those five possible successors to make the same pledge their boss has made, pledge to keep Mueller so long as the investigation is righteous. We are all now waiting for their answers. And there is now a bipartisan movement in the Senate, bipartisan, urging Trump not to get rid of Bob Mueller. Republican Tom Tillis has joined Democrat Chris Coons in a joint statement telling Trump their constituents want Mueller to finish the job. Republican Lindsey Graham and Democrat Cory Booker have introduced a bill together to require the Justice Department to get a judge's approval before Mueller could be fired. The walls are closing in on a president who has no lawyer. It is from former Cambridge Analytica workers that we learned of John Bolton's association with that organization. And it is from those former workers we have learned that the company sent foreigners into the U.S. to influence American election campaigns. Whistleblower Christopher Wiley says Cambridge Analytica sent dozens of non-U.S. citizens to advise Republican candidates in the 2014 midterm elections. Canadians, Britons, and other Europeans were enlisted to work in races across the country in 2014. It is illegal for foreigners to take part in any way in the decision-making process of a U.S. election campaign, and it is illegal for a campaign to accept foreign help. Wiley has provided documents to support his claim to the Washington Post. This could mean trouble for Bolton being associated with parties in an FBI counterintelligence investigation and with the NRA, which is also under FBI investigation for allegedly funneling Russian money to the Trump campaign. Bolton is also the target of a Federal Elections Commission complaint for contributions from his super PAC. As expected, the Federal Trade Commission is now investigating Facebook and its practices, including its association with Cambridge Analytica and the harvesting of data on 50 million Facebook users. Cambridge Analytica worked for the Trump campaign as well as for John Bolton, Steve Bannon, and a host of Republican candidates across the U.S. with data it easily got from Facebook. With that FTC investigation officially open, Facebook stock again tanked on Wall Street, dropped another 5%. The latest drop came even after CEO Mark Zuckerberg outlined steps to protect users' data and to restore trust in that company. He has his work cut out with lawsuits now from both investors and the 50 million Facebook users whose data was collected to establish 50 million individual personality profiles for political purposes. Facebook CEO Mark Zuckerberg now says he will testify for at least one congressional committee, setting the stage for big tech on trial starting in a few weeks. Zuckerberg's decision to cooperate with Congress now puts pressure on the CEOs at Google and Twitter to do the same. Zuckerberg agreed to testify here in the U.S. before saying he would not do so for British lawmakers. When eager campaign aide George Papadopoulos excitedly told his colleagues on Team Trump he'd been invited to do an interview on Russian TV, he was told, quote, you should do it. 
He was told this by the Trump campaign's deputy communications director, Brian Lanza, in an email two months before the 2016 presidential election. That email was a clear sign the Trump campaign saw a strong upside to, quote, partnership with Russia. Papadopoulos had already been pushing campaign officials to meet with officials from Russia. Steve Bannon, Mike Flynn, and Jeff Sessions were among those in the campaign who ultimately did meet with Russian officials. And it was Papadopoulos who was offered by Russia supposed dirt on Hillary Clinton. This would all seem to be evidence in an investigation into collusion between the Trump campaign and the Russian government, which operates the network requesting that interview with Papadopoulos. And this apparent evidence, that email, is among the piles of documents collected by the investigators for special counsel Robert Mueller. That campaign officials would later publicly write off Papadopoulos as a mere coffee boy would seem to support a case for obstruction of justice. Trump himself has called Papadopoulos a liar after praising him when he proudly announced Papadopoulos would be part of his campaign's foreign policy team. It has been over a month since Jared Kushner was stripped of his high-level security clearance, and yet he remains at the White House, however quietly, still engineering Middle East policy. But Kushner no longer gets to see the president's daily brief as he had every day, much less share it with his friend, the crown prince of Saudi Arabia, which is why the crown prince reportedly said he had Kushner, quote, in his pocket. As political power in Saudi Arabia shifted, the details were outlined in that president's daily briefing, which was, of course, of great interest to the new Saudi government. Last fall, Kushner flew to the Saudi capital to meet with the new leaders, and he did it without giving a heads-up to U.S. intelligence. A week later, Saudis who opposed the new government were robbed of their fortunes, shocked, burned, beaten, tortured, and killed. Trump would later tweet his great confidence in the crown prince and said, quote, Some of those they are harshly treating have been milking their country for years. After the crown prince visited the White House, Trump told reporters the U.S.-Saudi relationship is, quote, probably the strongest it's ever been. As Americans debate the value of Sunday's 60 Minutes interview with Stormy Daniels, Ms. Daniels and her lawyer have stepped up their legal battle against Trump. Their confidence bolstered by that interview, they are now also suing Trump's attorney in this case, Michael Cohen, for defamation of character, for insinuating she had lied about her affair with Trump. They are also asking to depose the president, ask him questions under oath in a session they say will last two hours or less. Daniel's lawyer wants to ask Trump what he knows about the hush money that appears to be an illegal campaign contribution. There will be a hearing on that request in about a month. 22 million people watched the Stormy Daniels interview more than had watched the 60 Minutes interview of Trump and his family right after the election. Ratings have always been important to Trump. And afterward, a CNN poll had 63% of Americans believing her and former Playboy model Karen McDougal over just 21% believing Trump. This new defamation lawsuit against Michael Cohen comes after Cohen sued Daniels for violating her confidentiality agreement with Trump, which she and her lawyer contend is invalid because Trump never signed it. In the interview, Daniels explained that she had remained silent because she feared Trump and his people. She told of being approached by a man in a parking lot in Las Vegas as she was putting her baby daughter into her car. Daniel says the man told her to forget the sexual encounter, that she had a beautiful child, and that it would be a shame if anything happened to her mother. The lawyer for Trump's lawyer 
has now sent Daniels a cease and desist letter for implying that his client, Trump's lawyer, had something to do with that threat. Daniels told 60 Minutes she was breaking her silence because she was being made out to be a liar. Nearly two-thirds of the people who saw her interview, however, came away confident that she is not lying now and that the president probably is. In her CNN interview, former model Karen McDougal apologized to the first lady for having an affair with Trump, adding, I wouldn't want it done to me. The stormy matter is the subject of this week's commentary from Salon.com's Bob Seska. Thanks, Buzz. One of the many thoughts I had while watching the Stormy Daniels segment on 60 Minutes the other night was that potentially thousands of viewers automatically disregarded her story simply because she's a porn star. There's clearly a built-in credibility problem here, and it derives from her occupation. But just because she works in porn doesn't automatically make her a liar or a swindler. In fact, more than a few of the porn-related people I've met over the years have always seemed excessively honest and generous, perhaps linked to the reality that they routinely expose themselves in every possible way, a form of physical honesty that could extend to their word as well. Either way, though, it's impossible to disbelieve Stormy, especially given that the other side, Donald Trump and his personal lawyer, Goomba wannabe Michael Cohen, are such prolific liars and provably so. Therefore, in the familiar competition of he said, she said, the syllabus of Trump lies combined with Trump's obvious history of womanizing makes what she said more believable by contrast, at least. There is, of course, the problem of her behavior during this ongoing Trump escapade, first agreeing to the NDA and accepting the $130,000 suspiciously and perhaps illegally paid to her by Cohen, along with both written and spoken denials of the affair. Yeah, she entirely flip-flopped on this Trump fiasco, and anyone who cites this as a glitch in her credibility isn't necessarily wrong. But again, take a look at the criminals she's up against. Knowing what we know about Trump and Cohen, the odds are much greater that they're the ones lying and engaging in a cover-up. Oh, and there's also this bit of business. Cohen basically confessed that he paid hush money to Stormy in order to protect his quote-unquote friend, Trump. Just so it's not lost down the memory hole, here's exactly what Cohen said about that payment. Quote, what I did defensively for my personal client and my friend is what attorneys do for their high-profile clients. I would have done it in 2006. I would have done it in 2011. I truly care about him and the family, more than just as an employee and an attorney. Mm-hmm. So why did Cohen pay Stormy $130,000 in the days immediately preceding the election? You don't pay hush money to someone if they don't have something to blab about. Cohen's stupidly accidental confession merely leaves questions about the details of the affair and the intimidation, physical and otherwise, after the affair, not whether the affair happened in the first place. Here's another piece of the equation that works in Stormy's favor, too. If you've ever spent any time dealing with the MAGA hat army, the pro-Trump trolls and crazies on social media, you can probably testify to their tenacity and maybe even the unhinged brutality of their behavior. Now, in the case of Stormy v. Trump, amplify that assault by a factor of millions. She appeared on the most popular network news magazine in the world. 22 million people watched that telecast, using her own name to attack the president of the United States as a liar, a scumbag, and a thug. And she's a female porn star. Good Lord, I can't even imagine what her Twitter mentions, her DMs, and her email inbox look like today, but a lot of it has to be more than a little terrifying. The variations on slut must be blindingly awful. 
Yet Stormy appears to be well aware of the propeller she's walking into, telling Anderson Cooper that she's facing, quote-unquote, a whole lot of shit, which naturally is an understatement. The fact that she knows the consequences of her actions makes her more credible, since she's clearly not doing this to cultivate a safe personal life for her and her child. This is a huge risk without much reward beyond notoriety. Frankly, if notoriety was accompanied by the onslaught of extremists and fanboys clamoring to verbally or literally spit in her face everywhere she goes, I'd gladly decline the notoriety. After all, it's not like she blends into a crowd. Everywhere she goes, she'll be accosted by maybe four out of every ten people. Her life has been permanently altered, and not all for the better. Even if her story of the affair doesn't entirely hold water, there's an absolute upside to this entire fiasco, right or wrong. Stormy and her team is successfully trolling the king of all trolls, Trump himself. We've talked about Trump using a tennis ball machine to keep his hideous mug in the news. But Stormy has her own tennis ball machine, and it's aimed in the direction of the Oval Office. And that alone is extraordinarily satisfying. I'm Bob Seska for Buzz Burbank News and Comment. Thanks, Bob. Get more of him at Salon.com and Tuesdays and Thursdays on The Bob Seska Show at RealmNetwork.com. Join me with him there every Tuesday. What's different this time about the gun debate and a census you can't count on after this? Just a quick reminder here to do your online shopping by using and bookmarking the Amazon link at buzzburbank.com. This production gets a small commission from Amazon when you do that, so it's very important for me that you shop through that link for home, school, church, or office. Now, if you'd prefer not to use my Amazon link for any reason, please support this free newscast through the PayPal Donate button just beneath the Amazon button at buzzburbank.com. And thank you. What makes today's young adults different from most previous generations is what makes them the same as the young adults late in the Vietnam War. This generation, like that one, is scared and pissed. Danger is threatening them personally, and they are unsurprisingly motivated by these emotions. Protests were much of what ended the Vietnam War. This generation's hoping their voices will end the pandemic of gun violence. The young people marching today, like those who marched against the Vietnam War, are often articulate perhaps even more so. So, scared, pissed, and articulate is where change begins. Young Stoneman Douglas student spokeswoman Emma Gonzalez says every student at her Florida high school is forever changed by the gun massacre that killed 17 people on Valentine's Day. If that's the case, there and at all the other schools from Columbine on, then 187,000 high school students in the U.S. have been exposed to that kind of gun violence in their schools. That's more kids than the entire populations of Fort Lauderdale, Florida, or Eugene, Oregon. Nearly 200 schools have had a shooting on campus during school hours since Columbine. 13 were killed at Columbine, twice that many at Sandy Hook, 32 at Virginia Tech, 17 at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas and nearly 200,000 classmates live to talk about it. We have about 10 school shootings a year, or at least we have since Columbine in 1999. We've had them in 36 of our 50 states. About 130 students, teachers, staff, and others have been wounded in school shootings since then. Today's students are frightened every day during active shooter drills, and especially during what turn out to be false alarms. There's fear in the hoods, and there's fear in the burbs. A better income no longer means safer. 
And school shootings are just a fraction of the problem of kids as targets of gun violence. Nearly every hour in this country, a child is wounded or killed by a gun. Every hour. On the day before students and others marched on Washington for better gun laws, Jaylene Wiley died. She's the 16-year-old girl who was shot by an ex-boyfriend at Great Mills High School in Maryland early last week. Jaylene was taken off life support on Thursday two days before her classmates and others would take to the streets in mind-blowing numbers. More than 800,000 people turned out for the march in D.C. Hundreds of thousands turned out in cities big and small, red and blue, across the country and around the world. About 800 other marches in the U.S. in addition to the one in D.C. There were marches in other countries, on every continent, in fact, except Antarctica. They marched in Berlin, Madrid, Rome, and Tokyo. A lot of the millions of dollars raised to pay for the D.C. march came from Oprah and George and Amal Clooney. Paul McCartney marched in New York where gunman Mark David Chapman killed McCartney's bandmate John Lennon three decades ago. One of my best friends was killed in gun violence right around here, McCartney told CNN, adding, so it's important to me. The Boston Patriots lent their team jetliner to the students and parents at Stoneman Douglas to fly them from Fort Lauderdale to the nation's capital for the March for Our Lives rally. This student movement against gun violence is far from over. There'll be another walkout on April 20th to commemorate the anniversary of the Columbine Massacre, and the students are working to arrange town hall meetings with lawmakers in districts around the country. And if the lawmakers don't show, their opponents in the midterms are being invited to appear in their places. And in the meantime, the students continue to register voters and they continue to speak. No one could see that Stoneman Douglas senior Emma Gonzalez had started a timer as she began her remarks to the tight and massive crowd on the street below the March for Our Lives stage. Her first words were, six minutes and about 20 seconds. And from there, Gonzalez talked about the horror of those minutes in which a former student sprayed bullets through the halls and classrooms at her school. Emma spoke powerfully for just under two minutes and then stopped. Through her short speech and the awkward, unexpected silence that followed, she alternated between fighting back tears and succumbing to them. The crowd clearly didn't know how to react or what to do. Some occasionally applauded, showing appreciation for what she'd said. After more silence, someone shouted, we love you, Emma. And after even more silence, the crowd began to grow even more uncomfortable and a bit restless. Gonzalez's silence continued for a stunning four minutes and 24 seconds until that equally unexpected timer went off. It had been set for six minutes and 20 seconds, the time it had taken for 14 of her classmates and three of her school staff members to lose their lives to military-style gunfire. Gonzalez spoke for only 18 seconds after the timer went off, ending her remarks with, fight for your lives before it's someone else's job. Her role as a key voice in the student campaign against gun violence has also made Ms. Gonzalez a target for conservative criticism. An NRA spokesman taunted the teen, saying, no one would know your names if your classmates were still alive. Gonzalez, one of the survivors of the Stoneman Douglas gun massacre, has been called a skinhead lesbian by a state-level Republican candidate who's since been forced out of the race. When Gonzalez was featured in Teen Vogue magazine tearing up a shooting target, one NRA supporter doctored and posted 
a doctored version of that photo to falsely portray Gonzalez as tearing up the Constitution's Bill of Rights. Conservative actor Adam Baldwin has compared the marching teens to Hitler Youth. The NRA has enlisted a teen of its own to argue against gun control. Likewise, the students are targeting the NRA. And then there's former Pennsylvania Republican Senator Rick Santorum, who's failed in his efforts to become president, partly because of his penchant for saying all the wrong things. As a commentator for CNN, he's done it again. How about kids, instead of looking to someone else to solve their problem, do something about maybe taking CPR classes or trying to deal with situations when there's a violent shooter, you can actually respond to that. Breaking down Santorum's utterance, he began by instructing kids to solve the gun problem instead of, say, adult elected officials. And he finished by urging the kids to learn how to deal with an active shooter as if that would somehow be normal. In between, he suggested they learn CPR, which is useless in treating a wound that's gushing blood. CPR is for promoting blood flow. Bleeding victims need the bleeding to stop. Rick Santorum had done it again and more. He derided the protests and their support for what he called phony gun laws. They took action to ask someone to pass a law, said Santorum. They didn't take action to say, how do I as an individual deal with this problem? Instead of saying, oh, someone else needs to pass a law to protect me. Santorum had just spoken against laws aimed at protecting children. Rick Santorum had done it again and social media users let him have it. By yesterday, he was saying he had misspoken. But Santorum and his comments and his walk back will not be remembered, as long as will the march for our lives or the long silence of Emma Gonzalez. As Republicans and NRA members criticized and tried to discourage the young people behind this movement, the head of the world's Catholic Church took a different view, opening Holy Week by urging the youth not to let the older generation silence their voices. The Boston Globe, meanwhile, dedicated its Sunday edition to gun violence by holding up its home state as an example for the nation. In 2016, according to the paper, Massachusetts had the lowest gun death rate in the country. That's fewer than four deaths for every 100,000 people. Five times as many people died in Tennessee, which has fewer and different gun laws. In Tennessee, the gun death rate is just over 17 people out of every 100,000. The Globe estimates that if the rest of the country had the same gun death rate as Massachusetts, we could save 27,000 lives a year. That would reduce the nation's gun death rate by 70%. As it stands, the U.S. loses nearly 39,000 people a year to gun violence. Even with the strictest rules in the country, Massachusetts gun laws have been consistently upheld as consistent with the Second Amendment. The Globe says 67% of the country supports tougher gun laws. Despite the claims that nothing can be done about gun violence, Massachusetts has made it clear things can be done. Banning assault weapons did not reduce the number of gun deaths, but it was never designed for that. It was designed at preventing mass shootings, such as the ones in Orlando, Florida, Aurora, Colorado, at Virginia Tech, and at a Baptist church in Texas. A slim majority of Americans favor a ban on military-style weapons in the hands of civilians. 
Even more effective, say experts, would be reducing large-capacity ammo magazines. Mass killers are less deadly when they have to stop and reload, as they did when the Second Amendment was written. In Connecticut, where guns are licensed like cars, the murder and suicide rates drop dramatically and faster than in states without similar laws. In Missouri, when such a law was dropped, the murder and suicide rates went up, even as they were dropping in the rest of the country. Suicides account for nearly one-third of all gun deaths, and waiting periods have been shown to be effective in reducing suicide rates. When South Dakota repealed its 48-hour waiting period, suicides rose by nearly 8% in the year that followed. Closing the boyfriend gap, as it's called, has cut murder rates by 7% in states that have them. That allows for court orders for one domestic partner to be kept away from another and, if necessary, to take away the threatening partner's guns. And, of course, stronger background checks. 42% of gun owners got their guns without a background check. And we know that states with tougher background checks have 35% fewer gun deaths and 53% fewer murders. Nine out of every 10 Americans want universal background checks. Nine out of 10. But even with 90% favorability, we still don't have universal background checks. Only about one in five Americans believes Congress will fix that under the influence of the NRA, which represents less than 2% of the U.S. population. Closing the loopholes in the background check system would have kept Charleston assassin Dylan Roof at bay. There are things that can be done. John Paul Stevens, meanwhile, is taking this a step further. As a retired Supreme Court justice, Stevens writes in a New York Times op-ed piece that the Second Amendment to the Constitution should be repealed, and he's urging the student protesters to aim for that. Justice Stevens calls the right to bear arms a relic of the 18th century, saying it was designed to allow states to defend themselves against a national army. And he's a lifelong Republican, albeit unpopular with fellow Republicans ever since he voted against the ruling that allows people to keep guns in their homes for self-defense. Stevens says he now regrets that vote, especially since it's given the NRA a propaganda weapon. Stevens says overturning the second with a new constitutional amendment would be easy, and he says it would force the NRA to argue instead for sensible gun laws. Stevens also favors banning semi-automatics, raising the age to 21 for all guns, and more complete background checks. But this former Supreme Court judge also wants the Second Amendment erased from the books. That will be a tougher road. Since only one in five Americans supports that idea, 60% of us hate that idea. Much of the success of the National Rifle Association is reflected in that and for making activists to stop using the term gun control and forcing them to use the phrase gun safety instead. The Brady campaign to prevent violence has stopped calling for banning handguns and Democrats have been politically compelled to declare their support of that Second Amendment because of the efforts of the NRA. Meanwhile, back in Florida, at least one county school board is saying no thanks to the state's new rule that allows teachers and others with training and screening to carry guns into classrooms. The Leon County School Board of Conservative Tallahassee has signed a resolution banning its school workers from packing heat. Even six weeks after the Parkland massacre, changes are still being made, even in the NRA lab known as Florida. It's been a wild ride for Wall Street and for the world since Trump announced $60 billion in trade tariffs on China. Trump made that decision in spite of warnings it would drive up prices Americans pay for imported goods and set off a trade war. 
Already jittery about Trump's new metals tariff and a higher interest rate from the Fed, investors did not take it well. The Dow dropped by more than 700 points in a single day as China retaliated with tariffs on some American exports. The following day, stocks dropped another 425 points for a total loss of well over 1,100 points as China imposed $3 billion worth of retaliatory tariffs on American fruits, nuts, wines, pork, and steel pipes. China also responded with the words including, China does not want a trade war, but China is not afraid of a trade war. And then China added an additional response. It offered to buy American-made semiconductors if the U.S. would call off Trump's new tariffs. China was offering a carrot even while threatening with a stick. Now, American ally South Korea has responded to the new tariffs it's facing by offering to allow more American cars to be imported there. For that, South Korea won't have to pay that 25% tariff on the steel it exports to the U.S. Trump had threatened to cut off military aid to South Korea if it didn't renegotiate a trade deal more favorable to the U.S. And then on Monday, Wall Street bounced back some, recovering just over half of what it had lost after Trump announced his tariffs on China. But by Tuesday, due to other factors, half of that gain vanished again in an investor freakout over tech stocks in the wake of the news about a data firm employed by the Trump campaign. North Korea's Kim Jong-un hasn't fired a missile in four months, but he's launched a diplomatic offensive that had him meeting with China's president this week. North Korea has today announced that Kim will be meeting with South Korea's president in a month from now, the first meeting between leaders of those two countries in more than 10 years. Kim also plans to meet soon with the current U.S. president. No one seems sure what any of this means or where it's heading. Between births and immigrants, it's estimated we're adding one new person to the U.S. population every 18 seconds. We base that knowledge on numbers from the United States Census Bureau, which is tasked with counting heads every 10 years to see how many people there are in this country. We've been doing it since it was added to the Constitution in 1790. The purpose is to make sure the people in this country are fairly and equally represented in Washington and to make sure that federal money is distributed fairly. The policy of this administration toward immigrants is hostile, so it has raised some eyebrows that this administration wants to bring back a census question we haven't asked since 1950. What's your citizenship status? Are you a citizen or here on a visa? Or are you an immigrant? Human rights groups argue that question will strike fear into the hearts of people who may be in this country without papers and even among those who do. The concern is that many people won't take the survey or won't answer honestly because they fear under this administration they would open themselves or their loved ones up to deportation. According to Democrats and Republicans who've run the census prior to this administration, the result of this new rule would be an inaccurate census, populations being underrepresented and underfunded and not provided with adequate health care. Businesses rely on accurate census data, but experts say this citizenship question will squirrel the numbers. Attorney General Jeff Sessions says the Trump administration is adding the question to, quote, protect voter rights. Sessions has spent his entire career opposing the Voting Rights Act, calling it intrusive. He called the recent Supreme Court ruling that gutted that law good news for the South. But now Sessions is all about protecting voting rights by asking about citizenship status.
At least a dozen states are now suing the Trump administration over this proposed new question, worried about the federal money they stand to lose, blue states mostly. Major cities are suing as well for the same reason, New York, L.A., San Francisco. Among Muslims and Latinos and others, the fear in their communities has just increased again under Trump. The fear that they or their loved ones will be deported from these United States of America. Take the case of 39-year-old Miguel Perez, who'd been deported to Mexico for a drug violation. He did seven years in prison for selling a small amount of cocaine. And when he got out, he was turned over to federal immigration officials who have now denied his residency. Perez has lived in this country since he was eight years old and enlisted in the U.S. Army just before 9-11. The Army was happy to have him. Perez served two tours in Afghanistan fighting for the U.S., but he's now facing deportation to Mexico, where he believes he'll be recruited by drug cartels and killed if he doesn't cooperate with them. Texas Congressman Vicente Gonzalez says nearly 1,400 veterans have been deported in recent years. Minnesota Congresswoman and fellow veteran Tammy Duckworth says the Perez case is, quote, a tragic example of what can happen when immigration policies are based more in hate than on logic. In other news, the Trump administration announced this week it will end protected status for more brown-skinned immigrants, about 4,000 Liberians who have lived legally for decades in the U.S., just as the administration has done with Haitians, Nicaraguans, and Salvadorans. About 800,000 Latinos under the DREAM Act have lost their protection on executive order from Trump. After not getting much of the money he wanted to build his great border wall, Trump is reportedly looking to use Pentagon money to build it. In the election campaign, Trump declared and his supporters chanted back to him that Mexico would pay for the wall. Congress has already set aside more than $1.5 billion of taxpayer money, American taxpayer money, to start the construction. It's been almost two years since a couple of Baton Rouge police officers responded to the report of a black man with a gun outside a convenience store. 37-year-old Alton Sterling was standing outside that store selling CDs when the officers confronted him. He was dead once that encounter was over, one of the officers firing six shots into Sterling, three of them into Sterling's back. It's been almost a year since the U.S. Department of Justice decided not to charge the officers with civil rights violations. Now, the Louisiana Attorney General has also decided there's no evidence the officers broke the law. Officials in Baton Rouge this week have been facing angry demonstrators in the streets and in city council meetings, just as they and the rest of the country witnessed after the initial killing of Alton Sterling. Both officers have been on paid leave and both will likely now be fired. Protests continue in Sacramento, California, after the police killing there of a younger, unarmed black man. 22-year-old Stefan Clark was killed Sunday by two Sacramento officers responding to a call about a six-foot-tall man breaking car windows. The officers say they fired because it appeared Clark had a gun. They fired 20 shots. The item they believed to be a gun was a cell phone, and Clark lay dead in his grandmother's backyard. Stephen Clark, by the way, was short, not six feet tall. His grandmother says she told the officers, you guys are murderers. You took him away from his kids. Quoting a local pastor, even if he did what they say, it does not justify his life being taken. An investigation is underway, and so still are the protests, including one that kept basketball fans out of the Sacramento Kings arena. 
More than 900 people were killed by on-duty police officers last year in this country. 68 of those people were unarmed. Of those, 30 were white, 20 were black, and 13 were Hispanic. Five were of unknown origin. At least 230 people have been killed by police so far this year. There will be another court challenge, of course, to Trump's latest attempt to ban transgender people from serving their country in the military. The new ban overturns an Obama administration policy and disqualifies troops who've had gender reassignment surgery. Current transgender troops who have not had the surgery are allowed to stay on, provided they were medically stable in their biological gender for three years before signing up. The latest ban reportedly got help in its construction and implementation from Vice President Mike Pence, whose policies have been consistently anti-gay and anti-transgender. And the door continues to revolve at the White House. Trump, again by tweet, has fired embattled Veterans Affairs Secretary David Shulkin and replaced him with the White House doctor who declared Trump's genetics are so good he could live to be 200. Dr. Ronnie Jackson has never run any organization before. He will now run the second largest agency in the federal government. The Veterans Administration runs only behind the Defense Department in terms of manpower and budget dollars. And Jackson agrees with Trump's plans to privatize the VA, an idea strongly opposed by veterans groups. Trump had also floated the manager of his campaign airplane fleet to run the Federal Aviation Administration. David Shulkin, by the way, in a newspaper op-ed piece this morning, also, like Rex Tillerson, wrote about what a mean town Washington has become. Clowns, drugs, Roseanne, and Florida woman Mary's tree in the third and final segment, up next. Stop spending those restless nights flipping and reshaping your pillow to get cool and dry. Wake up as cool as the other side of the pillow. Sleep on a hollow pillow. The Hullo pillow stays cool while giving your head, neck, and shoulders perfect support all night long, night after night. A lot of us have spent some pretty good money on good mattresses but still haven't found the right pillow. Fiber fills are hot and humid. They collapse under your weight. They don't give you the full night's support you need for good posture and good sleep, and you have to keep replacing them. A memory foam pillow gives support but maybe not quite the shape that's right for you. It doesn't breathe so it gets hot and it gives off chemical gases you probably shouldn't spend a third of your life inhaling. Hollow pillows are filled with natural buckwheat hulls that don't give off gases and don't collapse. The buckwheat's grown and milled by American farmers before the hulls go into Hullo's pre-shrunken, certified organic, unbleached cotton twill casing. All of that right here in the U.S. Hollow pillows breathe and stay cool and most importantly, conform perfectly to your head, neck, and shoulders for a truly restful night's sleep. And you can adjust the fullness of the Hullo pillow by removing or adding more hulls through the zipper that's covered for comfort. I'm so happy with mine, I'm proud to give it my personal endorsement and proud that a percentage of the profits are donated to the Nature Conservancy. Hullo pillows are available in three sizes, small, standard, and king. And right now, depending on the size, you can save up to 20 bucks on each additional pillow with fast, free shipping. But you can only get that deal by going to hullopillow.com slash buzz. That's hullopillow.com slash B-U-Z-Z. If you had trouble getting in with the old code, please try again using buzz. Thanks again for supporting this brilliant company and this show at hullopillow.com slash buzz from our stuff you knew but didn't know department prescription prices are rising at 
10 times the rate of inflation. And we're talking about the most commonly used medications, especially by the growing population of older Americans. A new congressional report says prices in the U.S. have risen about 12% per year over the past five years. The report's title, Manufactured Crisis. Americans spent $8.5 billion more on drugs than they had before, and that was with fewer prescriptions being written. Quoting the Democratic author of the report, Missouri's Claire McCaskill, the pricing decisions made by drug companies are outrageous. A group that speaks for Big Pharma calls the report misleading, even though you already knew. Dentists will be prescribing fewer opioids under a new policy from the American Dental Association. That new policy puts a seven-day limit on opioid prescriptions for acute dental pain. It's the first rule of its kind from a professional organization and an obvious effort to address the nation's opioid addiction and overdose epidemic. The president of the ADA is calling on, quote, dentists everywhere to double down on their efforts to keep opioids from doing further harm. But the new rule has already been criticized for limiting duration, but not the dosage or the number of pills. Another tool in fighting the opioid crisis may be a chemical found in marijuana. It's one of the main chemicals, actually. It doesn't get you high. It's CBD, short for cannabinoids, and it has medical uses, including psychiatric. Among other things, it relieves pain. Canadian researchers found patients liked the pain relief from CBD more than the relief they got from opioids. Many athletes used CBD as a salve for joints and muscles. It can legally be taken as an over-the-counter dietary supplement. And a new study from the Scripps Research Institute in California says it helped lab rats beat their drug and alcohol addictions and relapse less often. Opioid-related deaths in Colorado have fallen by more than 6% since that state legalized weed for recreational use. 29 states and D.C. now allow medical marijuana, while nine others allow recreational use. Now, CBD is found not just in marijuana plants, but in hemp plants as well. Hemp is also used to make rope, mulch, clothing, soaps, and lotions. It was once a respected agricultural crop. George Washington grew it, writing, Make the most of the Indian hemp seed and sow it everywhere. And even the father of our country used an exclamation mark on that. Thomas Jefferson grew industrial hemp as well. And now, no one less than Senate leader Mitch McConnell wants to remove hemp from the controlled substances list and to legalize it as an agricultural crop once again. It's already grown legally in 19 other states, and it's being studied in 34 others. McConnell's home state of Kentucky is already poised to grow 12,000 acres of hemp. Each acre represents $2,000 profit a year. It's something tobacco farmers could grow instead, especially as tobacco production declines from less use. Quoting McConnell on his hemp effort, we're going to give it everything we've got. Last week, I reported on the new FDA crackdown on cigarettes, limiting nicotine and flavorings. I mentioned that the FDA was dealing with e-cigarettes and vaping separately. About that. The FDA is now being sued for not addressing e-cigs in its latest focus on regulating tobacco. Not focusing on e-cigs or cigars or pipe tobacco or hookahs. 
The lawsuit is backed by the American Cancer Society, the American Heart Association, the American Lung Association, the American Academy of Pediatrics in Maryland, a couple of advocacy groups, and a few doctors. It won't surprise you to hear that some clown is running for Congress. It might surprise you to know, no, really, this guy's a professional clown. At least he used to be until his employer shut down the Ringling Brothers Circus. So Steve Lowe took the next logical career step into politics. He's competing against two other Democrats and a Republican incumbent in the race for South Carolina's 5th Congressional District seat in Congress. Steve got politically active after the gun massacre of little children at Sandy Hook Elementary School in Newtown, Connecticut, after he saw no change in gun laws. He's campaigned twice for Obama and once for Bernie Sanders. Lowe says that speaking as a professional clown, some of the politicians in Washington are the worst clowns he's ever seen. Passings and passages. Linda Brown. How many times have we heard reference to Brown versus Board of Education? It was the landmark Topeka, Kansas case that led to racially integrated American schools in 1954. It was her soft-spoken father who took up the cause when his daughter Linda was not allowed to go to the school in her own neighborhood because she was black. Ultimately, the United States Supreme Court agreed with Oliver Brown unanimously. His daughter became an educational consultant when she grew up and a public speaker. Linda Brown died Sunday in Topeka at age 75. It was a sad week for kids of all ages. Just days after Toys R Us announced it was closing all of its stores, the company's founder died at the age of 94. Charles Lazarus was also a veteran of the Second World War. And TV's original Bozo the Clown is gone at age 89. Frank Average who hosted that show for years on Boston's WCVB, died Tuesday at his home in Boston. He also served as a UNICEF ambassador. Black Panther was not the number one movie in theaters this week for the first time in its six weeks of release. Pacific Rim Rising was tops with a $28 million take. Black Panther was second, down to $17 million now that nearly everyone's seen it at least once. For previews, theaters, showtimes, and tickets, please use the Fandango link at buzzburbank.com. Well, the return of Roseanne was a major hit. More than 18 million people watched in real time Tuesday evening with the return of a series that aired its last new episode in 1997. The Roseanne reboot scored even higher ratings than the show's last season finale 21 years ago. It's the highest scoring season premiere for a sitcom since one of the Big Bang Theories four years ago. It was a higher rating than the current NBC drama, This Is Us. The T-Rex is extinct. At least the life-size animatronic T-Rex that was on display at a dinosaur theme park in Cannon City, Colorado. No one besides the T-Rex was injured when it went up in flames. Quoting a park owner, there was an unfortunate and rare electrical issue with our mighty T-Rex, and he is no longer. The park says they hope to replace him. Kind of a mechanical Jurassic Park. Dictionary.com. Some of us use it. Some of us clearly don't. Our current president has trouble with spelling, and Dictionary.com noticed that its traffic spiked after some of Trump's tweets, after the tweets in which he had misspelled a word or two. When Trump misspelled honored with an E instead of that second O, the use of Dictionary.com spiked by nearly 4,000%. 
When Trump falsely accused Obama of ordering a tap of the phones in Trump Tower, he spelled it with two P's. Dictionary.com says traffic spiked by more than 46,000%. People looking to see if there might be a spelling of tap with two P's. And it's not just Trump. The White House even misspelled the name of the man just chosen to be our new VA secretary when it issued the first statement on Trump's presidential checkup. It's NNY, not NNE on Ronnie Jackson. And one of Trump's former Russia attorneys, Mark Kazowitz, wrote a statement on behalf of Trump in which he spelled Trump's name Predizant. The baseball sailed over the wall. One of the walls, anyway. In Honolulu, firefighters brought drills and saws and hammers to free a man from between two very close concrete walls. His baseball had cleared one of the walls, but not the other, and landed between them. Now, Michael Anthony Majacomo is skinny, so he went for it. He wasn't skinny enough. He called for help once he realized he was trapped. The firefighters literally labored. The concrete walls had been reinforced with rebar. Majacomo was rescued. No word on the fate of the baseball. An opossum was rushed to the vet on Florida's Palm Coast, dehydrated, after being trapped for about three days under the hood of a car being serviced at Highway Tire and Auto in Palm City. The owner of the car had brought it in after she spotted an animal tail moving behind the front grill. A sheriff's office animal services officer labored with a mechanic named Johnny to extract the opossum without injuring it. They succeeded and took the big rat to the vet. The opossum will be fine, I guess, and it's no longer up in her grill. They wanted a garden wedding, so Chrissy Sloniker and Leda Torres decided to make it so. And then they realized that since the Walmart, where they both work, is a 24-hour store, some of their co-workers wouldn't be able to attend. Unless... Unless they had their garden wedding in the Walmart garden department. The ceremony was approved by local management and all the way up to the home office. Walmart's not mine. Garden department customers reportedly enjoyed the ceremony as well. And from the home office in Florida, a Fort Myers woman married a ficus tree. It'll never work considering the age difference that tree is over 100 years old. But Karen Cooper was more than just a little upset when she heard the city was planning to cut down this ficus, of which she is so fond. It's actually the topiary version of Sister Wives. Karen decided to share her husband-to-be with several other women in white gowns on that wedding day. After the ceremony, Karen told a reporter she's taking her fight to the city's beautification board, and if that doesn't work, to the city council. Because as Karen puts it, if they cut down this tree, I'm going to be a widow. And finally, there were French fries all over the highway on the 5 outside of Irvine, California Sunday morning. A McDonald's semi had dumped its load when it overturned and frozen fries went everywhere. Police say the fries didn't cause a traffic hassle, so there was no need to salt the road. I'm Buzz Burbank. Thanks for listening and for supporting my sponsors at buzzburbank.com. I'll be back next Thursday with another Buzz Burbank news and comment. The preceding presentation was brought to you by The Realm Network.